Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. HousingWire Daily examines the most compelling mortgage, real estate, and fintech articles reported from the HousingWire newsroom. Each afternoon, the HW Digital team provides our listeners with a deeper look into the stories that are helping move markets forward. Hosted and produced by Alcina Lloyd and Victoria Wickham. And now, here's our host. Pulled from the hottest topics coming across our news desk. I'm Victoria Wickham, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today, you'll be listening to a Girl Funds podcast crossover episode that features an interview with Colorado Springs based real estate agent Scott Sanchez. In this episode, Sanchez and Girl Funds host Brenna Knapp go through a list of the top home buying questions to ask from Bankrate and delve into how to figure out your total budget. But before we listen, here's a brief word from HousingWire's newest podcast. They say money talks, so why can't we? HousingWire is thrilled to introduce its newest podcast, Girl Funds, a show where we give you our two cents on money. We love to talk with our girlfriends about everything, except our finances. We're here to bring money back into the conversation hosted by me, Brenda Knapp, along with our editor-in-chief, Sarah Wheeler. Be sure to join us every week starting this Wednesday for our girls' night focused on everything from how to pursue your dream of owning a home to affording your best friend's wedding. Each week, we'll have a special guest join us as we intertwine finance and friendship. I'm super excited for our guest today. I know I say that a lot about a lot of guests, but this one really hits close to home, no pun intended, because today on Girlfriends, we have Scott Sanchez. He's a Colorado Springs-based realtor and, fun fact, my realtor. So we've talked a little bit here on Girlfriends about how I went the home buying journey, started off the beginning of the podcast looking for a home, and then eventually closed back in Thanksgiving. So super excited to have my own real estate agent on the podcast, just kind of go through some of the great questions that I know I asked for him and that I hope I think a lot of listeners want to know about how to buy a home, what are the top questions, and what do you need in order to be prepared? So first off, thanks for joining us, Scott. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, and I feel like you deserve extra kudos. I know I just went into it there, but I feel like I asked you so many questions as my husband and I were going into buying a home. Um, and you were always so thorough, had so much information. And for those who don't know, Colorado Springs is a very hot market. And so I think a lot of these tips that you can share with us, Scott, really aren't just Colorado Springs based tips, but tips that really could be applied across the nation. Sure. Sure. And you know, there are a lot of hot markets 
um, you know, really the whole real estate market is pretty hot, but there are some markets that are a little more balanced. So we'll definitely try to apply those there too. We always like to start recently with kind of this fun, big lofty question, but it's a fun way just to see how people have received different financial advice in their life. So want to start off with this kind of loaded first broad question, feel free to take it in whatever direction you want, but it's, what is the best piece of, of financial advice that you've ever received? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest one is just spending less than what you make and then investing what's left over. Super simple, super basic, but <clears throat> like a lot of things, it's the hardest, the hardest things are often the most simple. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, I think, I think that's for me, saving and spending less than you make is it, it, it it's what we all hope to do, you know, we get a job or whatever we're doing with our careers. But um, for me, that's, you know, you, when you take something like that to heart and you actually save and you let time do its thing. Um, that's definitely made a huge difference in my life. I've been talking more about tips like that with friends. And that's one that I think is so, um, important. And then I sometimes want to ask that follow-up question of like, okay, how can I keep myself accountable for this? So any chance you have a follow-up there on like any tips on how to stay accountable in that department? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think all, all this all has to do and really, you know, and this directly involves home buying as well, but you know, yeah. whenever we're talking about investing and saving and spending less than you make, it's a, it's a behavioral thing. It's a, it's, it's purely, you know, how you choose to spend your time and your money. And so I think a lot of this has to do with self-sacrifice, um, sacrificing the now for the later, right. The long-term. And that's something that we all know we're supposed to do. And, you know, like we're supposed to brush our teeth every day, not because they're going to fall out that day, but because we don't want them to fall out, you know, 80 years later. And so it's, it's this thing that's, we're, it's ingrained in us, but we're also, you know, we're born in this Western culture where we're ingrained to spend money as well. And spending money is not bad, but it's, you've got to be able to tell every dollar where it's supposed to go. And so I think a lot of that, you know, people go get a job and then when they see what they're going to make, it's just like, okay, that's what I can spend. But that's a backwards mentality. You need to kind of figure out what you can save, pay yourself first. And, you know, that really will dictate your budget and things like that. So to me, that's really the basic point of that is to is to just sacrifice everything now and it's not everything I mean, you can have fun you can take trips you can do certain things right but you've got to have some leftover to save because you don't want to just work your whole life and so it's a long-term play and a lot of people can't really see beyond the now and so yeah that's such a great tip and one of the I'm big into strength finders, Clif, uh, Clifton strength finders, and one of them is futuristic. And I always wish I had that one because it, it takes so much into account that thinking long term. On, on that point, I think we actually talked about this during your deal, the strengths finders things. Um, uh, for me, that's that's actually my my number two. My number one's learned about number two is futuristic, and my kids will tell you that I, I constantly live in the future, which is not great for now, yeah. right? Because I, I miss out on some things, but uh, but yeah, it's it definitely helps. <laughs> I wanted to start this podcast episode a little differently just because New Year's is around the corner and a lot of people are debating, should I buy a home in 2021? And so I found this article from Bankrate, which is a common site for different pieces of financial advice. And it went through this list of like the 15 best questions to ask when buying a home. And I thought it'd be a great time to start off this episode by going through this list with you, Scott, and saying, okay, do you agree with this? Do you disagree with this? And is there any extra details that you think should be added that way if there thinking of buying a home in 2021, they can have a better like gauge of like, oh, actually maybe I'm closer than I think, or maybe this is farther than I think. So wanted to walk through this list with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great article. I did read it. 
Um, and a lot of these are the same things that I discuss with my clients when we first sit down. So it is a pretty good comprehensive list, but we'll try to get into each one of these. Yeah. And this first question is, I think, probably the first one I asked too. So I thought it was uh, very per- appropriate to be the first one on their list, which is what's my total budget? So do you agree with that being maybe one of the biggest ones to ask and anything you'd add there? Yeah. And I really think this is the question. You could probably take that question and write, you know, 15 different articles on that one question, because it's such a, it's really the basis for any home purchasing decision, whether you own a home or you're planning to buy a home now or in the future. I mean, that's the magic question is total budget. Um, And so many people jump into it and, you know, they're looking on Zillow or realtor and they're kind of dreaming and they're, you know, they're kind of ballparking basic advice that they've kind of heard over the years. And then, so by the time they call me, you know, they, they, they feel like, they're pretty educated. But then after we get into that first hour, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm going through all these questions that is in the sub points within this first question here of total budget. Um, but that's really the question is, what do I need to have saved up? You know, what are the hidden costs? You know, what are the things that I'm not thinking about? And those are really important um, questions to get into initially before you even really start looking at a home. Um, you know, my number one thing is, and I know Brenna, we talked about this um, a lot yep, up front yep. was, you know, being a well-prepared and well-educated buyer that I can sell to the sellers, uh, especially in our market, you know, in a really hot market like Colorado Springs, you know, just making a good offer and, you know, and, 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 you know, being super competitive is one thing, but being well-prepared is really a big separator between the top of the pile of offers and the bottom of the pile of offers. So um, total budget, again, it's the, it's the number one question. And I think it has a lot to do with what you have in your bank account, but it's not just that. It's also you know, your debts. Um, how does that affect your purchasing power and things like that? That is huge. And I think something I didn't fully understand because total budget, you're like, is that just my closing costs? Is that how much I put down? And so painting that full picture of how much, especially when it comes to negotiating, I think that was a big part of learning as well when it comes to home buying of like your total budget to your top of your price range to kind of your Mm -hmm. bottom. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of it too, is not just what, you know, cause some people would come and say, you know, I've got X amount of dollars saved up. I'm ready to buy a home and that's all great. But then you also have to look at, you know, what have they already committed to, whether that be, you know, do you want to have a kid soon? Um, you know, are you going to be bur- purchasing a car? You know, are you about to graduate? There's all these sort of outside life decisions that really have a little bit to do with your home purchasing decision. Um, not just from a financial standpoint, but, you know, location and all these other things. And so your total budget, you know, it, it even, you know, and also being able to take care of your house long term, you know, what, you know, just like a car, what are the expenses that, you know, you might be able to get approved for a loan, but what are those expenses that are going to go into owning a home long term um, that you're prepared for that maybe your lender is not even really considering? And so it's, it's an all inclusive question that really does take a lot to unpack. I mean, talking to your lender is a big part of it, but, you know, really kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit and kind of dreaming. Um, and that's a lot of what I do. And I know we did that as well with you and Josh. I did. I want to preface, I cut some of these questions out since it was a longer list for time's sake, but the ones that I thought were interesting that I'd love to get your feedback on. So I might've changed up the order, but the next question that was <laughs> 
intrigued me, especially because we're in a seller's market that I thought was fascinating was why is the seller leaving? So like, that's the question to ask when you're looking at a home is like, why are they choosing to leave the property? I think there's different directions that could go, but would love your take on that one. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. I think, um, that question it's, you're going to get different answers based on, you know, your situation and your market, but in our market here, you know, it's, I think every buyer wants to know that. Why are they moving? You know, what's, you know, are they moving because of a neighbor? Are they moving just because they're relocating? You know, what's the, what is the reason that they're leaving? Um, and that question can be asked. I do try to initially upfront, you know, just through a roundabout way, asking the agent, not in maybe that direct term, but just through the conversation, just trying to gather as much information so that we have more leverage when we're making, you know, the offer. But the truth is in our market, you can gather all the information, but uh, it's not really going to help your leverage too much just because they're, they're, they're not really trying to compete for us. You know, we're competing for the house. And so I think that whenever we're asking some of these questions, you know, it's more for the buyer's information, like, Hey, you know, are they, are they selling the house to, um, you know, because they've done a bunch of work to it and need to cash out. I mean, those are great questions to ask. And I will tell you, maybe three, four years ago and then earlier, those are really important questions because it did help you with your leverage points when you were negotiating. But in this market, it's just more of an FYI and you still have to compete for the home. But um, it's, you know, it's good to get as much as much information as you can from the seller. And that leads into the next one. We're talking about renovations or additions or what they did. And I know mm-hmm. we, the home we purchased was renovated and they did some amazing additions, but it wasn't like a flip home. Um, and looking at how different people are selling their home right now, I know you've helped clients with different things before they sell their home. So what are your thoughts on asking the question, were there any additions or major renovations? Yep. And so I think that's actually a really key question. That's probably more of a question than the, the last one that we talked about. But generally speaking, you know, a seller, um, you know, would they would have to disclose all the additions and the renovations. And it's actually in their benefit, too, because it's a marketing point. Right. Here's all the stuff that we've done, just like your house. Um, and so those details are normally disclosed. But then we also want to verify what was actually done by the seller. And there's several ways we do this. Um, you know, one of the first ways, and I think that definitely the first way that I talked to you guys about was, um, checking the permit history for all the major items like HVAC roof, electrical, you know, additions, things like that. Um, we can go and look for the permit history there. So if they tell us that they replaced the roof, but there's no roof permit, it's like, okay, well, what's going on? Um, we can also request that the seller provide any additional available due diligence documents. There's a place in our contract for those documents. Um, and so that's their chance to kind of show us like, hey, here's the contractors that we used. Um, here's the list of contractors that we use along with the invoices and all the work that was done. I know in your house, they sent a giant email with just tons of great information, which is yep. actually quite rare to get that much. But it's good for you guys. Mm-hmm. So we could go through and make sure that everything that they did was good. But a lot of times people don't actually hire uh, you know, contractors. They do the work themselves. So you just kind of have to take what you get. But, you know, and then the inspection is the other place we want to kind of confirm that, you know, if they renovated or did did the additions or upgrades, you know, did they do it right? Is there anything that they kind of hid behind stuff and things like that? I was so grateful when we got that giant list of emails. I was not as thorough as my husband at Josh going through those (laughs) on Mm -hmm. my to-do list to be more detail oriented, but he, he, 
that carries that baton for the both of us. And a lot of the things that he was able to look through, like the pictures, the before and the afters, like you said, aren't normal, but we're very thankful just to be able to see just what has happened to this house, the roof, the renovations. And I know a lot of people these days are making changes to their houses before selling them. They are. And a lot of people are doing that. I mean, that's why it's really hard to get a handyman or an electrician right now because they're so backed up. Um, So many folks are because the values of their homes have really gone way, way up, um, especially these last five years. So if you've owned a home for 15, 20 years, the amount of equity you have in your house is almost enough to retire on now. And so these folks are pulling out home equity lines of credit, renovating their house to where it looks great, and then reselling that home for a lot of money. So, um, so yes, so you see a lot of people doing it. Now, in your house, the, the cool thing is the reason that you saw all those uh, pieces of information was because it was an owner that did all that, and they had lived there for years. So many times, that, like a house like you would have bought like with all the renovated stuff, that was done by a flipper. And so they don't really, they don't really care. Like they'll give you the information sometimes, and but they don't really care because they know, even though we might care and we're trying to be good buyers, you've got 20 other buyers who just, they just want the house. And so, you know, they don't really have to do that. But if you can find an owner occupied house where they really have pride of ownership, you'll get a lot more of the documents like we saw. And I do want to note that we later on, I know one of the questions I'm sure you saw is going into how to be competitive. And a lot of these questions play right into how to be a competitive um, applicant or look competitive to the seller. Um, Going so I'm going to pair these two questions together just because I think a lot of people are asking them and it's like how the question is how is the neighborhood or like what are the neighbors like like how do you help work with your clients on like picking a neighborhood looking at neighborhoods realistically on what they can afford versus their dream neighborhood like what are your thoughts on that question for sure well it's and I always recommend the same things to everybody and I think I would have told you the same thing too if I you know pretty sure I did but um, even if I didn't shame on me. But, um, you know, you, 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 I always recommend my clients, number one, especially, so a lot of this has to do with your market, right? So some people do what you're talking about before we even start looking at homes, right? It's the initial dream phase where you're just kind of window shopping, you're driving around, you kind of know the basic price points of the neighborhood. And so you're like, you know what, these three we really like. And so a lot of that fact finding people do upfront. Um, and they just drive around and they kind of, you know, get to know the area. I do recommend parking and walking because a lot of people in Colorado are outdoorsy and you can meet so many people just walking on the street and you can just ask them the question, Hey, we're in the neighborhood. We're considering buying a home. You know, what do you, what is your take on the neighborhood? And you'll get some great information, but always take all that with a grain of salt because it's every, every conversation you have will be anecdotal and it'll be their experience in the neighborhood. So you kind of try to talk to as many people as you can and get an average you know, opinion of the neighborhood, I guess, because you'll have people who hate it and you'll have people who love it. And it's usually somewhere right in the middle. Um, so that's the neighborhood piece. But the second part of that question really is, I think it's a, an important one, is your neighbors. Um, so many people, I can't tell you how many people would not buy a home because the neighbor next door appears to be unkept, untidy, whatever. Um, and those are important things for sure. But I've also had the flip side where we go and look at a home and the neighbors sitting in the backyard while we're looking at the house and we strike up a conversation and they just love the neighbor. And so that's a compelling reason to purchase the home. But I'm always trying to, um, you know, encourage my clients to really not use that as a consideration unless it's something insane where like you just know the neighbor has got, you know, cars everywhere. They've got a, you know, they're, I don't know, this would be in a non HOA neighborhood, but 
you know, maybe they have like a, they work on cars on the weekends and there's just car stuff everywhere. Of course, you would pause from purchasing that home or maybe even have a, you know, consider maybe passing on that house. But by and large, I encourage my clients to not purchase or to, to either purchase or to not purchase based on the neighbor because you can buy a house, have two fantastic neighbors, and a month later, they're both gone, especially in this market. You know, this is a high, highly transient uh, communi- uh, community that we have. And so people are always leaving and moving here and we just have high incoming and outgoing rates. And so the likelihood is, is that your neighbors will probably move in the next five years anyway. So even if you found your dream home and you had a neighbor next to you who just wasn't maybe the best, you know, I would still encourage people to buy that home because that, that person could, could leave, they could stay. You just don't know, you know, and you're buying the house. And that's, what's hard is sometimes you go and you buy a home in its current setting with its current neighbors and its current feel. And then two years later, it's totally different because everybody's moved. So yes, you take that into play when you're shopping for a home, but you know, you also have to consider all the other stuff as well because your neighbors are not forever and that's not really what you're buying. There's one more question on the list that I wanted to ask you. And then also as we wrap up the article questions, just like, is there any question that you would add to it? So before we get to that part though, the question that I know I had going into this process that um, ties back to the first one, it comes to total budget, which is how much will I pay in closing costs? So how do you help set the mindset around that with potential borrowers? Yep. Home buyers? So I generally set the tone for this from the very first time that we have that first buyer phone call or meeting or something. Um, is, is really answering the first question, but like you said, it's related, but closing costs, you know, to a buyer is a different term than closing costs are to a seller, uh, to a buyer closing costs are primarily on the loan side. I mean, I'd say 90% of your costs are going to be on the loan side and that could be quite higher than that. Actually, um, title related closing costs, which would also be more of a seller expense, but uh, on the buyer side, there are very small you know, hundred to two hundred dollar fees, a couple of those for closing, but by and large, they are all lender related, um, and that's what closing costs are. But the other thing is, and I know you and I talked at length about this, was closing costs are really it's an all inclusive term for you know what are you going to have to pay out of pocket. But what you pay out of pocket is not all the same. Like a cost, like a true cost of getting the loan, are your lender related fees, like the cost of doing the loan. That's about half of your lender related closing costs are, are the, the, you know, the fee that your lender needs to do their job. But the other side of that are prepaid items. And I know you guys are aware of this just because of the industry that you're in, but you know, for a lot of buyers, they don't understand that a a little, maybe a little less than half your closing costs are going to be prepaid items. Um, And prepaid items are just items that you escrow upfront and you give your lender or your mortgage holder, let's say six months or a year's worth of, you know, um, taxes or HOA or whatever, and you're, you're providing it up front so that they have a little escrow account to pull from in the very rare event that you were to get behind on your payments so that you can't get foreclosed on. And so it just kind of gives them a little bit of, you know, a, a little head start in the event that they need that if you get behind. But most people don't get behind. And then whenever you go to sell your house, all that's yours anyway. So you're prepaying items you would have paid in the future. So Yes, there are closing costs, but they're not all equal. Some of them are yours that you use at a future point or your mortgage holder will. The other part is just to get the loan. That is extremely helpful information because I know like closing costs, escrow are some of the most searched terms for those exact reasons and understanding that you're just paying up front. 
Yep. And I mean, and that's it. And the other thing that a lot of buy, and I, I guess I just assume that people know this, but I, I should say it more is that and this is especially important for first time buyers because they don't really know this and they would assume that they have, I, I get this all the time. Like, you know, we'll, we'll be sitting down, we'll be talking about all this stuff that we're talking about here, closing costs, how much am I going to need for inspections? And I know we'll get into some of that in a minute. And so we kind of go over this total cash to close kind of a scenario. And then they're like, okay, cool, cool. Now, how much do I owe you for helping us find the home? But in the, this is the beautiful part about our market here in the U.S. is the seller pays the commissions to the to both agents. Um, in fact, what they really do is they pay the commission to the listing agent, and the listing agent pays half that to the buyer's agent. So it's no cost to you as the buyer, um, because you know typically if you're going to sell a home, you're going to get you're going to make money, and so they just put all those costs on the seller. And so later, you know, after you sell your house, you'll pay the same commissions to an agent. But at least initially to get into the house and to get into the investment, there's no upfront cost for the, the agent themselves. And so that's a really big incentive for people that they don't really know about. And I think a lot of people, in fact, I know over half of my buyers at least ask me that question every time. And so they come in with the assumption that they're going to have to pay me, but they don't have to. That works well for, because I was going to ask you at the end of this kind of article list of like any extra questions you would add to this list and knowing mm-hmm. that half of your buyers ask that, it'd almost be a good question to add in of like, yeah. how much do you pay your uh, buyer agent? And the answer kind of being what you just went into of yeah. actually the seller pays them. <laughs> yeah, important. no, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Is there any other question that you would, you would add to that list though, before we kind of move on to other questions? Uh, no, just that, just the concept of what home ownership is to wealth building. I think that's another big thing I would say is, you know, you hear it all the time, but like, how does it actually happen? And, you know, people are like, yeah, you know, I hear that, but you know, you got to pay for the furnace when it breaks too. And I don't think people understand how, how much wealth you can build through real estate. So if you're sitting down and I know you've actually done this with Josh and I, but you're sitting down with a new potential client, they reach out to you and they're basically saying, okay, Scott, we want to buy a home in 2021. We don't know where to start. Um, Are we even ready? What would you, what, you know, kind of piece of advice or starting jumping off point, would you tell that person? Sure. So, I mean, and I think this is, this is really, this is a big, for first time buyers, this is the question, right? Like, Hey, we want to buy, we don't really know. We're a little concerned. We're not, we don't really know where to start. I think, so this is my recommendation. I feel like every single person is a potential home buyer. I don't care if you're 18, just graduated high school. I don't care if you're just graduating college and you have a mountain of debt. Like everybody is a, is going to be, at least they should plan on becoming a home owner. And so if you're going to do that, whether that's now or in 10 years, why wouldn't you have a plan for that? Just like you would for retirement or for marriage, or for kids, or for anything like that. People have these plans, but for home ownership, they just kind of expect it to, once I have, you know, 10, 15,000 in the bank, then I'm going to call an agent. It's like, no, call me when you're in debt, right? Call me before, you know, five years out. Um, and I think that th- that's, you know, if you, if people are ready to buy in 2021, or if they're not even sure, contact an agent, you know, a, a trusted agent who would be willing to spend the time. Um, unfortunately, I feel like so many people think that, um, you know, agents only work with active buyers and sellers, and maybe there are some that do, but a good agent really that's, I mean, for me, that's when I am the most valuable is to somebody in that mode. Like, okay, we don't really know. We're kind of ready. We're kind of not, we don't really know if 2021 is the, 2021 is the right year. 
that's when I'm at my most valuable as a buyer's agent to that, to that client, you know, opening doors, giving them advice for sure. There's value there, but the upfront, the initial decision on how to make a purchase and those first couple of steps, that's the most important. Are there any like rhetorical questions that you would give to a person who's trying to find a real estate agent? Like what to ask Because to your points, like you want to find a good real estate agent would sit down with you and help give you that plan or think long-term. So how can, how can a home buyer find like a good agent? Sure. Um, you know, what I always say, honestly, is, is to, you know, whichever market you're going to be buying in is to find three to five trusted people that you know, like just anybody, people you're going to be working with, maybe the, the HR department at a job that's, you know, that's trying to hire you and ask them and say, who have you personally worked with and get a personal referral for an agent? Because buying a home is a very personal thing. Um, you know, it, there's always an agent for every buyer. I'm always surprised because you know I, I'll see agents and I'm like, I can't believe anybody would use them. But then when you meet their client, you're like, oh yeah, they're a perfect match. You know, and I, so I think that it's, there's not a one-stop shop, even though I feel like I could be the best agent. I just know that that's not always true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's always going to be, for, some, for other, per, other people, there might be a better agent. So I just think that getting several recommendations of personal referrals for agents is huge, number one. And number two, is interviewing them, you know, ask them the questions that you feel like are important. And I think, you know, experience is one thing. Some people might look for the person who has 30 plus years of experience, but you and I both know that's just not all it's cracked up to be really in any industry because of how fast everything moves now with innovation. So, but I also at the same time would never just go with the brand new agent, especially for a first time buyer. There's just way too many, you know, there's just way too many potential landmines uh, of buying a first home that you can get in trouble with a, a buy, an agent that doesn't really know what they're doing. Um, and so you try to find somebody who's going to give you the personal level level of service that you really need. And um, But I'm telling you, the number one thing you look for, it's not personality. It's always going to be integrity. Find somebody who is going to have high, high integrity. Mm-hmm. Because whether they know the answer or not, they're all, you, you can trust them. They're going to be truthful. They're going to represent you when you're not there the right way. They're not going to be guessing and making up stuff. And so that's just really, really important is to find an agent that has integrity. And that, and this next question, I don't want you to have to give away too much of your, your secret sauce, but once you have that good relationship with your realtor or that personal kind of connection and being able to be open with them. So they know what, you know, what does and doesn't work for you. What is your actual move at time? What are your, your financial situation, stuff like that? Like what, what advice would you give to home shoppers on how they can be more competitive in today's market, whether that's how they're working with a real estate agent or any other types of tips to be competitive? Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of it is going to be based on, uh, you know, the market that you're in, in terms of the strategy. But I think across the board, it's always good to get. So a- anybody can call a lender, kind of tell them, hey, here's how much I make per month. And here's kind of my rough debts and things like that. And then the lender will say, okay, cool, you're pre-qualified. And they'll send you a lender letter and you can go house shopping, right? But that's super risky, in my opinion. I, I firmly believe that my really my upfront goal is to push people to get pre-approved, which means that yes, you've had the conversation, but you've also supplied them with the documentation that they need. That would be the last couple of years worth of taxes, you know, your bank statements, your income verification, things like that. And so they're able to run it through kind of a soft underwriting phase. And I'm not going to get too deep into that. I know you probably have a whole podcast on just underwriting, but 
um, you know, the, the, the underwriting phase, it, it's really important to have that person look at that and then kick it back to the lender. And then the lender gives what's called a pre-approval letter, which is a totally different scenario than a pre-qualification letter. A pre-approval letter essentially means that you're good to go. Finances have everything has been looked at by the lender. All we need is the house. The moment the house comes, you put the address in and boom, you can hit it and run. And so that's really that incentive that incentivizes the seller to take a hard look at your offer. Um, and it gives as a buyer, at least in this seller's market, it's one of the only ways I can, you know, we can gain leverage over other buyers is to be the well-prepared, you know, over-prepared buyer coming in. Um, and that's a big part of how I'm able to get to win these multi-offer situations. Um, and that's not necessarily a secret. I think the trick though is, it, I think people know that. I just think it takes a little bit of work. And so a lot of people don't do that because yeah. they're so excited about looking at homes. And that's exciting for sure. But it's a little like dating, right? I know we talked about this. But it's a little like online dating. Like, yeah. yeah, you can go out and start dating, but you know what? Go out and get your wardrobe first, you know, get your hair done, get your, you know what I mean? Wash your car, like take a shower and then go out and start dating. Like that's kind of, you got to prepare for it. And getting pre-approved yeah. is huge. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, the other thing, and I know you and we talked about this at great length, which is having the cash in hand that you say you're going to have at closing. Now, you, it's not always possible because people are continuing to save as they're getting towards closing, but that usually means that your margins are very thin. So I always recommend just waiting, get all your cash in hand that you need, and then begin the house hunt. Because <clears throat> that question is asked, it's right there in the contract that, that they can ask to verify our funds. But what I do, and this is a, a big part of how we're able to get these offers accepted, is I'm able to prove that point before they even ask, right? My, my job is to answer every question with complete honesty up front before they even ask them. Because then they're just like, well, this is an airtight offer, you know, and unless somebody offers more money or they're just in a better cash position, we'll win. And so that's huge is having all of your down payment and closing costs and inspection costs and every little thing, even a little extra if you need it. Having that is another little secret you can do. And then one more I'll touch on. There's so many of these, but the other big one that so many agents do now, but even when I list homes, I just don't see um, a ton of this is it's called an appraisal provision or an appraisal gap. It's letting the buyer, it's letting the seller know upfront that the buyer on top of the down payment, on top of the closing costs, on top of the inspections also has cash if in the event that it were to under appraise. And so what you're doing is you're letting them know, hey, if it under appraises by up to 5,000, I'll bring an extra $5,000 in cash to make up that difference. And this is one of those points that I'm constantly having to um, you just re-explain because it's not super intuitive when you're thinking about it. But the bottom line is, is if you ha your house gets appraised and it's appraised at a lower value than the contract, which in our market here is quite common because people are paying more than the list price because of how competitive it is. So there's a, there's a high risk that's going to under appraise. We're letting them know that when that happens, this is what we're willing to do. And so it's essentially guaranteed money for the seller if you have to use that. And so it's a good point of leverage that we can use to separate our offer. Because if our offer is, you know, $10,000 over list price and the other competing offer is $20,000 over list price, but we're giving them an appraisal provision and the other buyer is not, that's going to make ours look 
better because ours is more guaranteed. And so, um, in, in fact, on my own listings, that's usually what we go with is that offer that has the highest appraisal provision. So, uh, but you, you know, that really takes a special cash position. You've got to have your down payment because you have to be able to tap into it if you need it. Um, it can't just be an arbitrary amount. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. To hear the rest of the conversation, head over to the Girl Funds podcast, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily as we wrap up this week's news coverage. As always, we like to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Have a great weekend and catch everyone back here again on Monday.